You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of webmasterradio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of webmasterradio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly talking to you live from the Internet Law Center in Santa Monica, California. Um, We have a, a... busy show for you today and we're going to be starting off talking about online weapon sales in in light of the tragedy in Aurora, Colorado. Um, In the second half hour, we have David Sneed returning and David's going to be talking about, um, he's just freshly back from Boston where um, he spoke at HostingCon 2012 and talked about, are you the next mega upload? And I think that's going to be an important issue for a lot of hosts. Um, So, but before we start, um, we have um, we have David Kennedy. He is a um, gun historian and a museum curator in in Oklahoma. Um, and um, David, are you with us? Yes, I am, Bennett. Thank Thanks you for, for having me on. Yes, thank you for joining us. And um, on this, I'm short notice and, and on a a very um, sad topic. And yeah. um, you know, f- from what we've heard from reports. Um, so far, it appears that some amount of the weaponry um, the killer in Aurora assembled was purchased online. I believe a, a large um, amount of ammo was actually purchased online. And um, what is, is that your understanding? My yes, my understanding is uh, he had 
four firearms that were purchased locally in gun stores in the area and that he purchased over 6,000 rounds of ammunition uh, through various online sources. I mean, in your experience, as um, to the extent you know, is that something that's unusual? You know, uh, is that a, a normal type of purchase that you would type, you'd see, expect to see online? Uh, yes and no. Most folks who are going to be gun owners are going to buy ammunition 20, 50 rounds at a time at their local gun store, at Walmart. A lot of people don't necessarily go online to buy ammunition unless they're looking at either volume or a specialty type of ammunition that they can't get at their local source. And and so what would what would be the type of volume that would require you know, I was going to say trigger but <laughs> your very poor word choice um that would lead someone to um the you know, purchase online for you know what what volumes would kind of exceed a local store's capacity uh typically if you're buying most ammunition especially the common ammunition whether you're talking about uh the 5.56 millimeter that the shooter this weekend would have used in the AR-15 he had, or if you're talking about the 12-gauge shotgun ammunition that he used, you would typically, if you're going to buy more than a few hundred rounds, you would have to go someplace outside of the local community, simply because most of the local stores, they might only have a few hundred rounds on the shelf, and that's for people who are hunters, people who are target shooters, people who are trapped and skeet shooters, if you're going to be shooting more than just that basic amount, you're going to almost definitely have to go online or go to a larger gun store of some sort in some of the major urban areas. Now, if you, um, if you live – you live in Enid, right? Yes, I do. And um, if you purchased um, a gun in Enid, Oklahoma at a store – what would you um, what would you have to do to present in order to purchase a weapon? To well, the, and the laws are pretty much similar across this country, uh, with the with a few exceptions. Uh, Illinois, notably, and some of the other states have their own state requirements that you have to fit have to fulfill in order to purchase a firearm. But for here in Oklahoma, it's the same thing as if. When I used to live in Wyoming, when I used to live in Montana, when I used to live in Arizona, you walk in, you pick out the gun, you fill out a form called the FFL 4473. It essentially takes down all of your vital statistics as well as uh, answering a small number of questions saying whether or not you are a convicted felon, whether or not you're a drug user, whether or not you've ever been adjudicated uh, mentally insane or deficient. I can't remember the exact terminology they use on the form. But just essentially saying that you're somebody who is legally able to own the gun. And, and the form was, what's the form, FFL? It's, it's called the uh, 4473. 4473, FFL? Mm-hmm. Yep, FFL 4473. And the form, once you fill out that information, the gun dealer, and this is in keeping in mind, this is at a gun store when you're dealing with a licensed firearms dealer. Mm-hmm. They are required to call that form into what's called uh, for a NICS check, National um, 
identity. I think it's the National Identity Crime Center. Uh, crime. Uh, it's, it's a check that's ran off of the FBI. It's just one of these things. That's, everybody always refers to them all by the acronym, so we all forget right. what the real words are. Uh, but you call that in. They run a background check through the FBI. This is actually kept by federal leg- legislation separate from alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Uh, the check is done by the FBI. They maintain a database that essentially says whether or not people are convicted felons, whether you might have a misdemeanor, domestic assault, something like that, that would keep you from buying the guns. These checks may last, may take two minutes. They may take up to three days. And so if I walk in, I'm already on record as having purchased guns, and they've done this check before. So if I do a check, I might have to wait five minutes, and they'll get a call back saying, okay, Mr. Kennedy can buy his gun. If you're somebody who is a first-time gun buyer, you may have to wait two, three days. And first time that I bought a gun, I had to do that just simply because they had no record on me. But then once you get that done, you can purchase that gun. But that's just the one real hurdle is just get passing that background check in a okay. gun store. So if you went to um, a gun store right now, which would, would somewhat interfere with this broadcast, but nonetheless, um, <laughs> if you went um, – You'd likely, would you likely would wait just because of your prior background checks? It, 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 you would expect it to be approved within you know, a, a waiting amount of time? Yeah, I, I would expect within uh, 15, 20 minutes tops. Now, if you made that same purchase online, what would you have to demonstrate? And actually, let me back up. Have you ever, have you ever purchased a gun or weapons online? Yes, I have actually. Okay. Uh, a few years back, I was shooting trap a lot, and I had I was just using just a basic pump shotgun. I wanted a really nice over-under shotgun uh, that was a higher quality. It was kind of like just if, like you take your old set of Wilson golf clubs and you're upgrading to a ping. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I did is I went and I took a look at my local gun shops, and I didn't find what I wanted. I took a look online on a webpage called gunbroker.com. And at Gunbroker, I found a shotgun I wanted at a very good price. And I put in an offer on the gun, ended up winning it in the auction. And that gun was then shipped. I had to provide a copy of a local federally licensed firearms dealer to that seller. That, that seller shipped that gun to that license holder. I went into that gun store, filled out a Form 4473. They called in the check. I walked home with a gun. That's how online sales are supposed to occur if they're going to cross state lines. Um, but if, what if they're not? What if it, if was um, the online? It was an online sale, but it was just Oklahoma City. What if you're buying from Kevin Durant? <laughs> if yeah, if, if I'm buying from Kevin Durant, uh, there's no legal requirement for a private sale as long as it's inside the state. There's no requirement. I could I could sell buy or sell a gun from the facilities guy at the place that I work. I could sell it to my next door neighbor. No background check at all because that's a private deal between two individuals. As long as it doesn't go across state lines, there's no problem. If it goes across state lines, I could live in Minneapolis and selling. Oh, sorry, I could live in. Uh, oh, let's see here. Great example: St. Louis or East St. Louis. I live right. in St. Louis. I own a gun. I want to sell a gun to somebody in East St. Louis. By law, 
I'm supposed to transfer, take that gun to a gun dealer, a legally, federally licensed gun dealer in that state, in the state of Illinois, and then sell that gun to that person, having them getting the background check through that licensee. Now, um, if let's say let's if it was your next door neighbor, um, mm-hmm. and there's are there state requirements that would regulate that sale or no? In most states, no. There are some states that do require, and it's one of those things that again, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but you, you're going to need to check the law in your own particular states. Uh, I was born and raised in Illinois, and I know that they have some. There's still some pretty strict laws there, but it's state by state as to how some of the private transactions need to take place. But most states of the union, you can just sell to anybody. As long as you don't believe there's any reason that they should not have a gun, you're going to be fine. Now, yeah, I mean, you have a blog called Liberal Gun Owner. and uh, A liberal gun guy. A liberal gun guy. I, you know, I'm sure you get enough flack as it is. I don't think you want to throw in being a lawyer on top of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've always uh, joked that if I ever become really disgraced, I'll go get a law degree. <laughs> no, you wouldn't be the first. But um, so one question, though. I mean, we talked about you know, if – you said you made an important qualification. You know, as long as you didn't um, believe you thought this person was a legitimate bona fide buyer and was going to be using it improperly, um, and you, we talked a little bit offline about there was a study done by the New York um, New York law, New York um, Police Department, and it found that I believe like six, they did a, an audit of some online sales. And in sixty, and and as part of going undercover, they absolutely actually said that they would not. They don't believe they would pass a federal background check. Yeah. And sixty-two percent of the sellers went ahead nonetheless. Yeah, that was that. It, it was unfortunate for a number of different things, and there's some different uh, issues that I know that some of the people within the gun public, I know specifically with the NRA, that they take issue with how. Uh, Bloomberg went about doing that and the process they went through. That's I'm neither here nor there. I've actually I'm a life member of the NRA, but I take great issue with some aspects of the NRA and how they do some of what they do and why they do it. But for the Bloomberg report, what they did come out with on that, it's one of those things I've seen myself. Is you get some people who are gun owners who. They don't like how the government does stuff. They don't care. They don't see the importance of it, and yet they'll sit and they'll complain when something like this last weekend takes place. And I think it really is – there is that problem out there, and it's one of the issues that I've had for the last few years. It's one of the reasons that some of the gun guys I know, they'll take issue with some of the things I say because I agree that there should be – a background check whenever there is a private transaction simply because my next door neighbor Steve might be a really nice guy and he'll come over and he'll watch my house or he'll mow my lawn if, if I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks but I may not know that Steve has a felony conviction 20 years ago I may not know that Steve is a regular drug user and I mean there's lots of different issues there that you're just not going to know or the, uh, mental, you know, or the mental health issues as right, well. Right, yeah. And you know, we discussed earlier that I'm in the museum field. I regularly give seminars for museum professionals dealing with firearms as part of their 
historical collections or their object collections. And one of the big things I point out is you need to do background checks on your staff and on your volunteers simply because you do not know what happened in somebody's past. Your top volunteer, her husband, who knows some stuff about guns, he may want to come in and work with your gun collection, but you may also not realize he was dishonorably discharged from the armed services 20 years ago. And that will exclude him from being able to legally get involved with firearms. Wow. So if I, if, if I wanted to donate, you know, let's, let's say, you know, for example, my father was in World War II and he's passed. Mm-hmm. And let's say I, I discovered he had some weaponry um, for World War II. So if I wanted to donate that to a museum, um, not that I have any, um, actually, but if right. I wanted to donate that to, to a museum, I, I would still have to go through the, the gun background? No. Nope. If you are wanting to donate uh, a firearm to a museum, uh, first, if, if it's a gun that's older than 1899, if it was made prior to 1899, it's not legally a gun. It's As far as the government's concerned, <laughs> it's wooden metal. It's, it's an arbitrary date. It was established in 1934, and I mean, it's part of the same laws that establish definitions of machine guns. It was as a response to all of the gangster violence that was going on around Prohibition. Exactly. But if you wanted to, if you've got a brand new deer rifle that you want to donate to a museum for some reason, or a World War II gun you want to trans, you want to transfer to a museum, typically there are no problems, especially if the museum is a city, county, state, or federal museum. They tend they tend to be exempt from most of those. Uh, regulations simply because they're a government agency. So the only issue that you have to really watch out for is if it's something along the lines of a machine gun. There are problems where those are concerned. Okay, when we um, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we have Dave Kennedy, and we're going to talk about what what if anything we need to do about online weapon sales after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I signed us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. Rise links and web indexes. Take a bow to the largest link map in the world. Majestic SEO. Majestic SEO wields its virtual sword with speed and accuracy to deliver detailed reports of your company's link data and that of your competition. Let Majestic SEO make you your own king of internet marketers and join the crusade of clients and agencies that have chosen the noble choice for link intelligence. MajesticSEO.com Maximize ROI to use your time and let Majestic wield its mighty sword. MajesticSEO.com It's good to be king. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. 
Ebrams. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. Ebrams. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. Ebrams. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Podcasting at the speed of sound. WebmasterRadio.fm. The flamethrower. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly um, with the Cyber Law and Business Report here on Webmaster Radio. And um, we may not be everywhere, but hopefully we're on your computer right now or on your, uh, you're listening to us on your iPod. But um, we're back with David Kennedy and we're talking about the shooting in Aurora. And uh, it's a it's a tragedy, and it's 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 caused a lot of debate. And um, just um, today, the families of the victims from the Tucson shooting um, from two years ago that um, you know tragically killed a number of people and um, seriously wounded Gary Gabby Giffords, and uh, led to her resignation from Congress. And she's still recovering from that. Um, They've come forward and they have an ad actually that's in USA Today today in which um, it says, another mass shooting in America, another moment of silence, but will the moment ever end? And so they've come forward as survivors and um, they've demanded action from both um, and a plan from both um, President Obama and presumptive nominee Mitt Romney. So – David, you know, let's start first with the online topic. Um, do you think that there's anything that needs to be done to address online um, gun sales or online weapons sales in, you know, in light of what's happened and in light of the New York um, Police Department investigation? Well, as regards to the shooting this weekend, I wanted to reiterate that all four of the guns that were purchased, that were used or owned by the shooter were all purchased locally going through and following all of the federal regulations for purchasing firearms. Uh, regarding the New York City investigation, that's one of those things as we were discussing. There are guys out there who are going to buck the system. They're going to not worry about it. They're going to do it under the table, whether it's because they are ignorant of the law and don't realize they'll get into trouble, whether they understand that those guns may be used in a crime and they don't care, whether they're just looking for money. There's a lot of different things that can come into that. Uh, Myself, as I started to mention, I do believe that there needs to be some sort of background check that goes on for even private transactions. Other than something maybe going within a family, I think that there are some issues along those lines. The I'm definitely in the minority of gun owners who believes that we need to have something in the way of a background check at gun shows. Just simply because if you're looking for where the bad guns come from, where, where the guns used in crime, where the guns come from that end up getting like all the stuff that was happening, uh, you, know, you get 
if, if you're a criminal and you want a gun, you know you can't go into a gun store and buy one. What are you going to do? You're going to go to a gun show. You're going to find somebody online who's willing to do this without paperwork. And so you'll mm-hmm. still be able to get hold of the gun you want. And so I take a great issue with how that goes. Uh, probably I'd be willing to bet that the largest number of guns used in crimes are obtained in that way. But until we see some stats on it, we aren't going to know for sure. Uh, and like I said, I'm very much the minority, and I know gun guys who just bristle up anytime government regulations start to rear in there. But it's something that I think needs to be taken care of. For regulating any of this stuff, it's, I, I also see that there's a slippery slope. You start to regulate one thing, you regulate another. The last thing that I think we need to do is try and bring reinstitute. I've heard some calls this weekend reinstituting the assault weapon ban that came in in the 90s and then expired in 2004. The my big issue with that is it really didn't do a thing. The guns that they were banning the day after the ban came into place, the companies were still manufacturing the exact same guns with minor, minor cosmetic differences. Well, that, but that goes, that goes to not necessarily an, an objection to um, appropriate regulation of assault weapons, but really just a definitional issue. They just did a poor job at defining assault weapons. Yeah. It, 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 was, it was a nice idea that was very poorly executed. I mean, I know for, you know, had that ban been in place... Um, the rounds that were used in Tucson, you know, could not have been sold. Um, well, no. The had that ban been in place, the magazines that were used, uh, those the extended magazines that the shooter used yes. in Tucson, uh, those uh, would have been prohibitively expensive. Uh, the what happened when the assault weapons ban illegal. came in? Well, when as part of Specific to the assault weapons ban, it limited the magazine size to 10 rounds. Right. There were magazines that had been manufactured prior to the assault weapon ban that were much larger. And the same size you could get in Tucson. And now here we are almost 10 years after the ban has expired. So even if they were to reinstitute it, uh, I've got magazines and ammunition at home more than what the guy probably had in Tucson, but the and a lot of shooters out there are getting a hold of this stuff. Every time that there's a shooting, whether it was the Tucson shooting, whether it was the shooting this weekend, gun guys are going out and they're buying the guns, they're buying the magazines, they're buying the ammunition because they believe, and I, and I do think that there is some legitimacy in this. We already had one gun ban, assault weapon ban for a decade. There's a belief that the stuff that they want will no longer be available whenever this next another round of regulation comes in, which may be the you know which which could be the case. Yeah, but um, yeah, that 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 in itself isn't reason not to regulate. And um, I, I know there have been surveys that have shown even among NRA members. That you know, they the majority of them do support some sensible regulation. Obviously, right. they, they they you know, for example, the cop killer bullets. I remember in the eighties that was a big issue, and NRA fought it tooth and nail. But if you know, among the actual population of the NRA, they actually supported it. Well, yeah, and 
a lot of people will support bits and pieces of a lot of the legislation, just not the whole package. It's similar to what happened with the Affordable Care Act. A lot of America likes each of the individual aspects of it. They just didn't want the whole thing all at once. And a lot of it was just how the public relations aspect of it was pushed. But with the firearm side of it, there are a lot of little things here and there that would help. It was like you mentioned the cop killer bullets. That was one of those things. It was similar to when the Glocks were first really introduced into the United States. There was a huge complaint about how these guns could get, since they were heavily manufactured out of polymers, a large part of the gun was clear to x-ray machines. So people started complaining that, well, people are going to, they're a terrorist gun. They're going to smuggle them onto planes. There's so much metal in those guns that it's impossible to get them through an x-ray machine without recognizing it for what it is. And it's, it just depends on how some of the people are skewing the discussion. Some people are trying to, I'm trying to avoid using the word spin, but some people are trying to describe certain aspects of uh, legislation on both sides. And so that really is kind of what becomes an issue is when you've got the two extremes trying to come to a happy medium. We, um, we only have a few minutes left. And just um, for those listening, the, um, the survey that I'm referring to um, was released by Mayors Against Illegal Guns and it was done by GOP pollster Frank Lutz um, and among NRA members and gun owners. And it found that 87% of NRA members agree that support for Amendment rights goes hand-in-hand hand with keeping guns out of the hands of criminals. And 74% of NRA members and 87% of non-NRA gun owners support requiring criminal background checks of anyone purchasing a gun. So, But I'm afraid we're, we're almost out of time. Um, David, I really appreciate you joining us on such short notice. Um, is there anything, anything you want to say before we wrap up? Well, no, just wanted to thank you for having a discussion about this subject. It's one of the issues, just given what's happened this weekend, it usually tends to lead to people yelling and screaming at each other and looking for a soundbite, and it's just great to be able to participate in a fact-based conversation about the subject. My, I appreciate it. I really appreciate having you on. Um, so we're going to take a short break. But David, oh, by the way, where, what's, what's your blog URL? It's at www.liberalgunguy.com. And I, I really recommend looking at it because it has interesting perspectives from a gun owner as well as reaction to some of the overcoverage of these type of events um, as they occur. So um, I would definitely recommend taking a look at that for just a different perspective on this issue. And thanks again, David. We'll be back after these messages and we'll have um, David Sneed who's going to talk about um, hosting Con 2012 from Boston last week. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. How far do your ads reach? You don't have to fly around the world for the right consumers and clients to find your business. What you need is profit through performance. Location 3 Media helps you to increase your brand's findability and performance. Let Location 3 Media help you create efficient and effective online marketing campaigns that fit your needs and get you results. We know every click starts a journey. Where will your brand be on the path? Visit Location3Media.com. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? 
Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brad Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. How much time do you spend on SEO research and competitor analysis? What if we told you that there was an easier, faster way? Searchmetrics SEO software propels you to top positions on search engines around the world with our unique global search, social, and competitive data in over 60 countries. Gain a competitive advantage today with Searchmetrics.com. That's Searchmetrics.com. Just getting your feet wet on the Internet? Then dive into our stream, webmasterradio.fm. We're the coolest place around, webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back for our second segment. This is Bennett Kelly, and you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report here on Webmaster Radio. And we have a return guest, um, a, a good colleague and friend, um, David Sneed. And um, he practices in Washington, D.C., and he is back from hosting Con 2012 in uh, what I understand was quite a steamy Boston. David, are you with us? Yep, I'm here. Hi, Bennett. And- uh, great to have you again. And so when um, when you went out to eat in uh, seafood restaurants in Boston, when they were talking about steamers, um, they may not necessarily have been talking about the fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it was it was it was pretty hot, um, although not quite as hot as as the rest of the place. But it was a it was a great conference, and um, Boston is just really one of my favorite cities to visit. So it was really neat. And it is a fun town, that's for sure. Um, so you were speaking at uh, Hosting Con, not, not to suggest that you've been muted at other conventions. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's not, not something that's said about me very often. <laughs> Don't want that rumor to start. But um, any event, David, um, you spoke on an interesting topic, I thought. I mean, one, obviously, that would be very important to um, – the attendees there and a lot of some of our listeners, and that is how to um, are, are are you the next mega upload? And um, explain what you mean by that. So the the concern among internet infrastructure providers <clears throat> is that these prosecutions for um, hosting or or for um, assisting the distribution of of infringing content are getting more and more expansive. And uh, infrastructure providers are very concerned that these, they are going to be the next target um, or of, of Hollywood and of prosecutors 
um, for distributing this type of content. And so it was to talk about how uh, how hosts and how infrastructure providers, SaaS providers, can do things to uh, determine what their risk profile is uh, with law enforcement and with and with Hollywood and places like that. And and so um, you you were trying to address what basically what could happen if if they're not careful. If they're not careful and if they don't follow uh, what is going on in the law, you know, one of the big lessons for infrastructure providers uh, from Mega Upload, and this comes from the indictment, uh, is that it's alleged that Mega Upload was following legal developments, and they were following the legal developments not to change their business to uh, address the changes in the law, but to actually change their business to hide aspects of their business that had been determined to, say, be infringing. Uh, and so one of the things that I talked about was how you can use tools like, like your program to stay kind of ahead of where the law is going and to change your business and your terms of service and things like that so that you're kind of Compliant. You remain compliant, uh, and that's something that's it's alleged uh, Mega Upload was not doing. Well, I'm glad to hear that you called me a tool to everyone in Boston. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but now Mega Upload has been in the paper a lot, and its prosecution has been called into question. Um, you know, some of the a lot of commentators have actually criticized it. For example, Eric Goldman um, really found it to be a, a disgrace. And could you give us just a brief update on where we are vis-a-vis um, the, the Justice Department case against Mega Upload? And, and, and do you think this is a reasonable prosecution? So there are there there are two uh, issues that uh, I'd bring up. The first is the uh, the, the judgment uh, in New Zealand about the search warrants. Um, in essence, and this I'll, I'll use it a, a U.S. legal term, the, the search warrants were vacated, um, and basically uh, that is what those search warrants are underlying the extradition of um, Kim.com to the U.S. So it's really unclear what that's going to do to to the case, and particularly the extradition of Kim.com. What I think is interesting about the reaction to that is, you know, if, if this were to happen to one of my clients, <clears throat> my client would be really, really happy about it. Um, Kim.com's reaction has been that uh, this is just further delays. Uh, in in the prosecution and it's further it's making the prosecution longer and longer um, and giving the U.S. government the ability to to create a case as opposed to having a case. Mm -hmm. Um, The second is an upcoming hearing on Friday about a motion um, on behalf of Mega Upload, the company and not the individuals, um, that the U.S. government can't bring a criminal, can't bring criminal charges against Mega Upload because it's not a U.S. company. And there are a bunch of, of technical reasons for that, but it's, it's a really interesting argument. Uh, and the company is is arguing that um, the Justice Department is trying to, in essence, rewrite um, the rules, um, procedural rules, 
uh, in order to justify the uh, the the prosecution. Um, so those are the two developments that I think are actually really kind of interesting, um, and you know they all underlie um, kind of the fundamental problems with these prosecutions. Um, at base, you know, really seems like uh, the Justice Department and um, Congress, in some in some cases, are trying very hard <clears throat> to ensure or to, to have uh, distributed content providers like Mega Upload be determined to be inherently infringing; that their business practices are inherently infringing. And the law might not support that on such a broad scale. Uh, and so that's a real problem with these cases. Uh, it's a problem with the domain name seizures. It's a problem with the mega upload case. So I do have some fundamental problems with it. Um, it's very easy, though, I think, to poke holes in uh, the indictment just because it was written kind of like a crime novel. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I do think that there might be a little bit there um, from the Justice Department side. So a, a more narrowly crafted indictment might have gotten them more traction. And, and less, less um, blowback from what really seems to be happening. And, Absolutely. Um, and what about just in general? I mean, we've, the, 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 during the Obama administration, there's been what, close to 1,000 different domains that have been seized, if not more? Right. Right, and it's the, the the domain seizures. Quite honestly, I find um, much more problematic than uh, than than this prosecution because they there has been almost no information about them. Um, I think that the perfect example of that is the Jazz One uh, yes. seizure, where the Justice Department, in essence. Um, went, kept going back to the recording industry and saying, "Give us more information," and uh, and delaying the uh, the hearings over and over again in secret. Um, and you know, it's uh, inf infringing material is not uh, a national security matter, and so these kind of black box tactics are, are very, very concerning. And yes, and and ultimately, after having a year's worth of infringement, they decided not to pursue the case. That's right. Yeah, and, and so, go ahead. No, and, and so a company was put out of business for a year by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles for you know apparently no 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 valid reason. That's that's correct, and quite honestly. Um, the Justice Department and um, some members of the administration have said some really provocative things about these seizures. Uh, and really, the Jazz One and maybe uh, I think one other are the only two that have gone through the judicial system. And the reason that these domain seizures are not going through the judicial system is that these are not huge businesses. Uh, they don't have the resources to, uh, to, to take on justice and take on uh, the recording industry. So this is a, a big concern for uh, not only for domainers and, and, and people who make their living that way, but individuals who are using a domain name as the backbone of their business. Um, you know, I have, I have one client who uh, saw a 25% decrease in their uh, non-U.S. sales after the first domain seizure, and people were just, they were going to Europe. They were buying domains in Europe. 
instead of in the U.S. And so it, it has economic repercussions as well. Most definitely. And and is there any evidence of that um, occurring across the board? Are there any industry-wide um, associations that collect that data? Well, you know, I don't I don't have any statistics on that. I'm on the board of a, an infrastructure uh, co- uh, coalition, and we're just getting started. So we probably will have some. Uh, actually, we have have an individual who's working on some statistics like that for us, but we don't have it quite yet. That'd be useful to see. And it's interesting. I was watching the the mega upload video um, commercial with Kanye West, and uh, and so in terms of forwarding your lessons to your clients, don't do a video with Kanye West. I mean, that definitely makes it high profile. But no, but just you know, they they had a number of artists talking about how they liked mega upload, and that um, you know, they were able to transfer large media files, and. Um, and that that was one of the few tools that was available to them. And you know, it just dawned on me because I was actually was just at a business meeting like two days earlier with you know a producer, and you know, and she was talking about you know, t- you know the difficulty of transferring media files. And you know, and here in in, in Los in Los Angeles in Silicon Beach, I mean that's a big issue. And you know, finding you know, being able to transfer such files are important. And so Mega Upload had great value. I mean, granted, there probably were some things that were going on that were wrong, but also had great value just as a business tool, you know, for a creative community. And it seems like the Justice Department didn't really have a whole lot of regard for that in, in just shutting it down and, and not allowing people access to their files. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have similar similar uh, observations that you do. I mean, these, these are great tools. Um, they can... Like a lot of tools, they can be used for for proper purposes and improper purposes. But I think that this um, war that is being waged on uh, torrent torrent sites and the torrent community in general is really designed to stamp them out based on um, what has not been proven to be substantially infringing uses. Um, there is no, there's really no uh, unbiased. Uh, proof that, that that's going on. Uh, so it's, 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 it's it has some significant repercussions. Now, um, you know, coming back from from Boston and uh, hosting Con 2012, what were some of the other big things that were, that was the buzz of the convention? So the the big buzz of the convention is. Um, is as always, it's distributed computing and um, the the kind of rise of the application community and what the infrastructure providers are doing to uh, to support that. There's some really great new businesses out there that are um, that are being used to support kind of differentiated products, so whether that's the software-as-a-service businesses or the infrastructure-as-a-service businesses. And so there are these kind of these great new tools. I mean, it's, you could really see that in in the exhibit hall this year. So there were about, there's I think, about a 20% increase in exhibitors uh, and a, uh, a substantially large increase in, in attendees. The other thing that, that I'm amazed at um, in the infrastructure community is, quite honestly, the number of investment bankers that I run into. Um, it's really, really? a sign. Yeah, oh, yeah. There, there's, there's one conference now out there that's um, it's almost solely investment bankers and infrastructure uh, providers. 
And I think that it's really an indication that the infrastructure community on, and, and Internet infrastructure in general is just a, a, a real big source of revenue and, and a, um, a positive economic engine. It's, I, I'm honestly quite amazed when I meet like six investment bankers at a cocktail party. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, because they usually just do coke. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, but um, <laughs> the um, you know, in terms of what you're saying, though, in terms of the interest in the investment banking community for uh, something like this, I think it makes sense because as we move to the cloud, that that just creates a whole new hosting opportunity, and and also you know. Some liability issues too, and uh, you know how is that? How has the cloud transition been affecting you guys? Well, so the, the cloud transition um, has been there. There are a couple big issues that um, cloud providers have been wrestling with, and the the largest is um, security and how to deal with security. Uh, the, the cloud is much different than other infrastructure. Uh, technologies in the past simply because it's so distributed. And so how are these providers going to deal with security? In the U.S., um, you know, there, there are some companies have engaged in, in security audits, but um, it's really hard for companies to ensure that that kind of security goes throughout their cloud ecosystem. Uh, and in, in the U.S., they, com- infrastructure companies have to deal with, I think at this point, 47 different state regulations that deal with security. And depending on your viewpoint, they just it's kind of a race to the bottom or a race to the top um, among the states for who can come up with the most stringent notification requirements. I think Vermont right now is at 17 hours or something like that. Wow! Um, and imagine I'm trying to think of what the two are that that don't have it or the three are, and they must be thinking, "Thank God for Wyoming." Or, or <laughs> <laughs> everyone's going to run to Laramie to put their data center in Laramie now. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, well, and the other big issue for cloud providers is is privacy, and privacy is is one of those issues that kind of bedevils uh, infrastructure providers and. Uh, computing providers in, in general, because there's just no real great way of answering the privacy question. You know, Europe has one view, the U.S. has another view, and every individual has different levels of privacy that, they're, they're, that they experience. And so how to ensure that in a cloud ecosystem, everybody has the same privacy expectations is, is, is very difficult. And it definitely is. And, um, you know, I think it's going to be a, uh, an evolving issue um, because more people go to the cloud and, and therefore be- it becomes more of a target. Um, David, we only have a few minutes left, but is there, um, what's your next presentation and is there anything else you want to highlight before we sign off? Uh, well, so the next presentation I'm giving is I'm on a panel um, at the, the Cloud Security Alliance's uh, Europe, uh, European conference, and I'm talking about how the U.S. government can get access to your data. Uh, there's, a, there's a real belief among Europeans that the, the, the Patriot Act 
uh, gives the U.S. government virtually unfettered access to any data anywhere. And so I'm going to be talking about that. Um, I'm going, and you know, it's it's a it's a real big cultural uh, issue in Europe, and it's you know someone could swear on a stack of Bibles that the that the Patriot Act said one thing, and a European company will come to me and say, "Yeah, but I read on the internet somewhere." It's a very <laughs> interesting issue. And then then you explain that Mikey didn't die from pop rocks either. <laughs> I don't think that they would get that one. <laughs> yeah, probably would be Francois did not. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You mentioned that. I was actually, I, I was the best man at a wedding outside Berlin um, three weeks ago. And in giving my toast, I, I made my my best friend's Nigerian and I accidentally um, got him actually saying, dude. And which with a Nigerian accent just sounds like I, I've committed some kind of linguistic sin. And so I, I apologize for making him sound like a Nigerian Kardashian. And to my surprise, the, the Germans didn't know who the Kardashians were, which was interesting. But um, David, on that note, I want to thank you again. David, what's your website? Uh, DSNEAD.com. And um, everyone check it out. David's very engaging. And if you get a chance to see him, definitely do so. Um, I want to thank you for joining us on, on this um, segment. But um, before we go, I just want to note the passing of um, Sally Ride. I actually had the opportunity to meet her a couple of times. And um, she was definitely a very amazing woman. Uh, historically, I mean, she was not only the, the first woman astronaut, but she was the first female astronaut. And... Um, she um excuse me I didn't mean to say first female she was also the youngest astronaut to go into space at the age of thirty two and um she also served our country on the um both commissions for both Challenger and Columbia disaster and uh she died too young um this week at the age of um sixty two i believe um following a battle with uh um, pancreatic cancer, and um, her, we definitely want to note her passing. It's also unfortunate, it seems, that um, because of the Defense of Marriage Act, um, her lifelong, well, 27-year-old, 27-year partner uh, was denied, um, cannot get survivor benefits. And so here's someone who served our country so valiantly and so well, and and, and time and time again, and um, at this hour, um, it's unfortunate that that kind when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.